I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we are joined by Gio Saba, the Chief of Staff for Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley and sits on the House Armed Services Committee. Before becoming Chief of Staff, Gio was the Congressman's National Security Advisor and Legislative Director. Gio, tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in national security issues and how you came to work on those issues on the Hill. Going back to my college days, my dream was to be a professional baseball player. I was recruited to play baseball at Stanford. That was my dream and my focus. When I got to Stanford, I didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't know what I wanted to do other than I wanted to make it to the big leagues. And and so that was my focus. However, my freshman year, I took a class called International Security in a Changing World. And we learned about things like nuclear weapons and terrorism and all these sorts of topics that I didn't learn in high school and and was just totally captured by it. Um, And I just started taking more and more classes and getting exposed to different professors at Stanford, uh, people like Condoleezza Rice and Michael McFall, who really done this at the highest levels and got me interested in it. Uh, and, and that was sort of the, the initial pivot point as my baseball career came to a close and a decline. <laughs> I got more and more interested uh, in, in foreign policy and national security issues. I then went on and do a, a master's in international relations at Cambridge. And then after that, I reconnected with another professor of mine, then Ro Khanna, who taught an economics course before he was a member of Congress. And when he won, uh, asked me to come work for him in D.C. So a lot of young people, um, it seems to me, do relatively short stints on the Hill. But I think arguably you're like an old hand by now when it comes to serving on the Hill. You've been a legislative aide, a national security advisor, legislative director, now you're chief of staff. I would love to hear more about how Congress has changed in the time that you've been there and also what has surprised you since you started working on the Hill. Yeah, it feels weird to to be, I guess, a veteran on the Hill. I think most people spend, you know, a year or two years on the Hill. And that was my original intention. I was living in the Bay Area at the time. I had my life. My family was all out, out in the Bay Area. And when, you know, the congressman asked me to join, I said, oh, yeah, I'll do it for a year or two, get that experience, and then, you know, go on and do something else. But now we're, we're coming up on year six, uh, and, you know, I've just had an incredible, incredible journey. And one of the reasons why I stayed with it so long and why I didn't leave after a year or two was I was able to, we were able to, you know, I, th- I think have an impact on, on the foreign policymaking process. And to, to put that era back in, you know, in some context, it was 2017. Trump had just won the White House. We're in a fully Republican Congress. And so we were in the minority. I was working for a freshman member. My expectations were incredibly low in terms of what we could accomplish. But I was really amazed with, you know, what you can do when working for a member who you know, I would argue is courageous and willing to take a stand on a certain issue and bring people to that vision over the span of a few years. The thing in particular, what I'm thinking about is the Yemen war powers resolution, where in 2017, basically the de facto policy was that we were aiding the Saudi-led coalition in the war in Yemen, leading to massive starvation and civilian casualties in a war. And it wasn't on people's radar. And when we led that effort, it wasn't a very popular position. We were told 
don't take this position, don't force the issue. But over the span of a couple of years, we just kept pushing on it, pushing on it, forcing votes in the House through various procedural techniques under privilege status, and you know, really changed a lot of views on this. And that taught me that even though you know I was with a freshman member, we were in the minority, you know, we could have an impact you know, on on the foreign policy making process. And then things have really changed since then, right? You know, now we have a Democratic president, a Democratic Congress. And so things have become easier in trying to pass different legislation. Each Congress has been a, a new and interesting makeup. By 2018, you know, we had won back the House. And so that became more interesting. Uh, and so, you know, each Congress, there's been something new. And there's always, there's, there's not a shortage of foreign policy issues that come up. And also a wide range of, of ones. You know, there aren't large staffs on congressional offices. You know, we don't have many NSCs or many foreign relations or armed services committees on each staff. So it really forces you to become an expert in a wide range of things and learn up very quick on, on the different topics of the day. We often see your boss in the House giving an amazing speech or in a committee hearing grilling this executive or this government official. What does a day-to-day look like for you? What do you do to support that? How do you help actually make that impact on foreign policy? Yeah, so a lot of it is prepping him to to give those speeches, to ask those questions, talking through what the different perspectives or pushback he might get. So for example, on this this Yemen War Powers Resolution item when when I brought it to his attention, you know, I knew that people were going to be opposed. And mention that to him that, you know, people don't want you to do this. This is the pushback you're going to get. And, you know, his response was, I don't care. This is an important vote. Let's do it. And so a lot of it is, you know, presenting the different options, the pros and cons, offering my own opinion, what I think he should do. But at the end of the day, you know, he's the member of Congress and his name is on the door and we, we carry out what, you know, what he wants to do. And then a lot of it is execution. You know, he'll have a vision for what he wants to get done. But a lot of the times, you know, things are negotiated, details are negotiated at a staff level. And so going back and forth on different, you know, legislative text in this specific example, as it pertains to Yemen, I was going back and forth with different committee staff and leadership staff, hammering out that initial resolution that the House voted on. You can't run every single word by the member. And so using your judgment in terms of what is he okay with, what are the parameters of what he would want, talking with the different groups and stakeholders while trying to carry out you know, his, his larger vision. You've spoken a lot about the Yemen resolution. What sticks out in my mind is it was a resolution and not a bill. It wasn't constraining the president's authority to do anything. And the president has a lot of authority in foreign policy specifically to do pretty much whatever he wants, for good or for ill. So what's the current role of Congress in foreign policymaking, and what do you think it should be? How do you think Congress should flex its muscles in this area? In the past, Congress hasn't seen an incentive to be incredibly involved in in foreign policymaking. When there are times of tough votes, oftentimes that's come back to haunt them, various members, whether it's the Iraq war vote. A lot of constituents aren't calling in about foreign policy issues every day. It's not one of the top issues that a member is. It depends on the district, 
But oftentimes, you know, it's, it's about gas prices. It's about healthcare. Those are the main issues. And so Congress, you know, had just given up, you know, that power, even though Congress has the power to declare war and, and has that authority under the Constitution. So that was kind of the effort that we were trying to bring back. We started a War Powers Caucus, trying to get Congress more involved in this. And as you mentioned, even though it was a resolution, we still think it created healthy pressure to change administration policy. You know, the Trump administration stopped refueling Saudi coalition jets, you know, in response to, to that congressional action, even though President Trump vetoed it. We still saw, you know, behavior change in that front. And as you're seeing within the last week, you know, you have members of Congress like Congressman Khanna, but others like the, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Menendez, calling for, you know, ending and halting foreign military sales to Saudi Arabia. And then you have, you know, President Biden come out today saying we need to reevaluate the relationship. And in that particular instance, the, you know, the chairs of the, the you know, foreign relations committees have the ability to hold, hold arm sales. And so even if the administration wants to continue a certain relationship, Congress does have some, you know, ability to, to stop that. And you're starting to see that most recently with, with Saudi Arabia. One theme that we have sometimes touched on in earlier episodes of this podcast is the sort of challenge of getting Americans and constituents to care about foreign policy when a member of Congress is very focused on delivering wins to their district that are often very focused on federal issues like taxes and healthcare and education and so forth. And so I'd love to hear more about how you work with the congressman to think about messaging foreign policy issues for the district and creating a certain amount of salience there for folks who may feel quite far removed from it. Now, I imagine that the Silicon Valley constituents are maybe more plugged into some international issues than other districts around the country, but would love to hear more about how you guys think about balancing that and what you choose to emphasize when he's at home. Yeah, we have a very international district. Uh, we have a lot of people who grew up overseas, who have family members who are still overseas. We have companies that are very international. A lot of our tech companies have been on the receiving end of uh, IP theft from China and whatnot. And so we're, we're in a bit of a unique situation there. And you know, at, at town halls, the congressman is asked about humans, human rights issues, democracy issues. So I would say we have a bit of a unique district in that sense. And it's been one of the reasons why we've been able to, to focus so much of our time on foreign policy, where, where other members may not have that ability. But to your point on, on making that case, within the last couple of years, it's become easier to make. I mean, going back to, to the Saudi Arabia point, the average American is going to see their gas prices increase because of this decision, uh, or the war in Ukraine. You know, they're, they're seeing their, their gas prices increase because of this. If China has a one as as a, a no COVID policy or to invade Taiwan, we're now seeing what the types of supply chain impacts that has. You know, people can get the next iPhone; they wouldn't be able to get a laptop. Their couch is taking more time. So people are learning more about you know different supply chains and the risks associated with that. And so I think just making that case and explaining it to voters and assuming that. They can understand this kind of stuff. I think there's this tendency in DC to think, oh, this is such complicated foreign policy. You know, you have to be a 
a great grand strategist. But I, I think just, you know, explaining a lot of people are busy. They have things going on in their lives. And if you just tell them, hey, this is this is why this is important. This is why we need to provide more defense weapons to Taiwan to protect TSMC, because if, if they were to invade and take over TSMC, this is how it's going to impact your next car, your iPhone, your laptop. People get that. That's not that complicated to understand. So I think just making that case and trying to explain why you know, these are such important issues. And the other point I would say is I think people do care. They just it's not on, on their radar, on their TV screens. But when they are on their TV screens, they really do care. I think when Afghanistan was on the news every single week, when Ukraine you know, was on CNN every day, when you see these images of children that are starving, I think that was another turning point in the Yemen effort when that you know, photo of that starving girl was out there or you know, when the bus of children was bombed. That began to penetrate. Because when we were trying to push on that effort with Yemen, and go on TV, a lot of times the, the cable news networks would say the eyeballs turn away, the, you know, the, the channel changes when we talk about Yemen, especially when, it, when people talk about it in a way of curbing Iran in the region, proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Houthi rebels. When we talk about it in those terms, you know, very DC type ways of talking about these issues, people aren't following it in that way. That doesn't mean a lot to them. But when you talk about what are the actual impacts, how is it, you know, harming normal people like you and me, people are starving, people are dying, in addition to how that might impact them, you know, we found that to be pretty effective. So oftentimes, the right sort of gets away with easy foreign policy solutions by engaging the military, by saying, ah, we'll just like put extra money in defense, send in the troops, send in the drones whatever the case is. And that's easy for people to understand. And the military has bases all over the country. So a lot of people's family members have served. They are an economic boon for the area. But that's not true for diplomacy. It's not true for restraint. It's not true for foreign aid. And those are things that broadly, I think your boss is more interested in. He's more interested in that side of the ledger and foreign policy How do you make the case? Obviously, you were just saying, you know, it hits your iPhone, it hits you at the gas pump. But how do you say that these complex solutions that take time actually work for you today and not just, you know, send in another drone and we'll figure it out later? So I make two points on that. The first is that we do need to think more strategically about how the industrial base is able to get so much the defense industrial base is able to get so much political support. You know, Brown University had this good study which showed that jobs in, in clean energy or tech jobs actually have a larger multiplier effect than do jobs in the military defense industry. So I think making the case on that is important because it's true when the F-35 is made in you know everyone's congressional district, there is support for that. So I think other companies and other industries, particularly ones that are uh, you know, advanced technologies like semiconductors. I think that's a great way to offer still a national security focus. I would say Intel in Ohio is a very strong national security interest to in the United States. And, and we saw that, that lead to Ohio Republican members of Congress supporting the CHIPS Act because it led to jobs in their district. And so I think, you know, offering that alternative vision of not just building more bombs and, and tanks 
the technologies of the future and having that spread across the entire country is a vision that I think Democrats can lean into more versus just we're going to you know cut this base, we're going to cut this program, and you're going to lose your job. That's not a, an acceptable argument to make. But there are other jobs. There are clean energy jobs, which have a national security focus. You know, these petro-authoritarian regimes have an outsized impact, an outsized role in foreign policy, whether it's Saudi, whether it's Iran, whether it's Venezuela or Russia. The United States should become a major player in, in clean and green energy. And there are a plethora of jobs that will come with that. Uh, and so I think when Democrats talk about reducing defense spending, or at least not increasing it to you know, a trillion dollars, which is what we will be at soon, uh, there are other ways in which you know, we can provide you know, good opportunities and good jobs for folks. You just recently got back from a trip to Bahrain. Can you tell us what you were doing there, what you learned, maybe what a congressional delegation is? Yeah, so there are congressional delegations that members can go on to various countries. There are also you know, delegations at the staff level. So, you know, as you mentioned, I was in Bahrain last week. And I've gone on a few of these, you know, to places like India, South Korea, China, and Taiwan. And the goal of the trip is to increase ties and increase relations between the two countries, offer a chance to learn about various, you know, sectors, different ministries in these trips. I personally, and, and you know, in, in the capacity of, of the office, on a couple of these trips, I've tried to advocate for the release of certain political prisoners. So when I was in Egypt last year, I was advocating for the release of Rami Shah. In this trip in Bahrain, I was, you know, was advocating for the release of a couple of political prisoners who've been you know, in jail since the Arab Spring. And so I take these opportunities as, as a, a way to, to learn and learn about these countries, but also use the platform that I have to try and try and make a positive impact on some of these cases. One of the things that people talk about on these congressional delegations is that there are time and a space for people to work across the aisle and to see eye to eye. Have you seen that? Because there's been a lot of conversation about how the right and left are just completely diverging, even on foreign policy issues. Have you seen that the right and the left can still work together, especially on these important codels abroad? Absolutely. And I have a, a great anecdote to highlight this. So the, the first trip that I went on was in 2017. It was to China. And there was a, a Tom Cotton staffer on the trip. And if you know anything about Ro Khan and Tom Cotton, they don't agree on much. And towards the end of the trip, so this had been you know, a week long, we'd gotten to know each other in a personal capacity. You know, we were in, in, uh, going through a security line back to the United States, and, and he asked me what what I'm working on. And at the time I was working on a, an apprenticeship bill, bill for, for veterans. And, you know, I knew that uh, Senator Cotton is a, is a veteran. And I said, you know, working on this, I don't know if your boss would be interested in something like this, but it's a bipartisan bill. So he said, send it over, I'll take a look. So I sent it over. Uh, and, and two days later, he said, we'll be introducing the Senate companion. And that was the first bill that Congressman Connor signed into law that President Trump signed. And this all happened because of this trip that we went on. You know, had I emailed, cold emailed the Tom Cotton staffer saying, hey, I work for Progressive Pro Cana. I want to do this bill together. I might not have gotten a response. But because I spent an entire week traveling to 
Chengdu, China, and in Shenzhen and Beijing with the staffer to build that trust. But so I, I think it's so important, and, and I love that example. And I've seen it other times we, we've done additional bills with Senator Cotton's office on Taiwan because of of that. And you know, I, I'm I really believe that bipartisanship is important, and it can be facilitated with personal relationships. I live with two Republican House leadership staffers which is a rare, you know, a rare thing in DC, but I think it's important that we find ways to work across the aisle. There are a lot of issues that are nonpartisan. Every Monday or, you know, first day in session, we pass what's called suspension bills and it's usually 10 to 15 bills that, you know, are, are non-controversial and we pass those out of the house similar to, you know, the Supreme Court a lot of their decisions are close to unanimous and so there's a lot of good work to be done. Obviously, the big controversial items are hard to overcome with a personal friendship. But I do think on, on some of these issues, it's lower hanging fruit, it's possible to get a lot of good work done if you can develop a, a personal relationship. Historically, I mean, foreign policy and national security was an area in which there was a lot of bipartisan support and consensus. Do you feel like that is changing or it's still there at, to varying degrees. I think it's shifted in a, in a way where there still is bipartisanship, but the, the spheres have sort of shifted and, and readjusted. So, for example, on, on this Yemen War Powers Resolution effort, we worked with a lot of Republicans on this and worked with the Charles Koch Institute and worked with Mike Lee and, and Rand Paul and others like that. You know, those more of the libertarian mindset. And so, whereas I think before there weren't different views or different camps in foreign policy, and thus it was bipartisan, now you're starting to see a progressive foreign policy, a centrist foreign policy, and then an America first foreign policy. And I think those are all sort of different and they're, you know, they have overlapping, you know, interests at, at various times. And we've worked with, with folks in, from the libertarian camp, we're from, you know, the more moderate camp. It really just depends for us, at least, you know, do we agree on the issue? So on this, on the Saudi arms sales, though, we're working with Senator Blumenthal, who's not seen as a, a far left progressive, but on the Yemen war powers resolution worked with Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, our view is whoever agrees with, with the vision of what we think is right, we'll work on. But that means it could be, you know, far left progressive, centrist, or, you know, someone, uh, who's more libertarian or someone who is on the, on the far right even. You just laid out three different buckets. You know, you laid out the America First bucket, the centrist bucket, and the progressive bucket. And I, I would say that you would place your boss in that progressive bucket. How would you define what your boss is trying to achieve on foreign policy? Well, ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is serving American and U.S. interests. We represent our constituents. And so at the end of the day, we have to do what's best for them. And how we get there, I think, particularly in a progressive view, is to try and achieve those goals, solve conflicts diplomatically, not resorting just to to military force, not resorting to imprecise sort of indefinite sanctions. So that's sort of the, the first part of it. The second bucket, but part of it is, is a, you know, one where it puts human rights at the center of it and focusing on 
how it impacts people, not just in the U.S., but also across the world. And so realizing that, yes, something may have a benefit uh, in terms of balance of power or geostrategically or, you know, but, but how does this actually impact someone on the ground? How does it impact the people in those countries? So those are some thoughts that come to mind of what we're trying to achieve. And, you know, not saying that military action is never a solution or saying we don't need a military, but using that as like truly, truly, truly the, the last resort, you know, and when, you know, U.S. troops or, you know, the homeland is, is under attack, but really trying to find ways to, you know, solve conflicts diplomatically. If we are going to use sanctions, not just do it indefinitely every sector or just crush the economy with the hope of regime change. That type of posture has not worked, you know, in places like Cuba or Venezuela or Iran, and it just ends up hurting people. Going to specifics, maybe sanctions policy is one of those areas where there might be a difference. I would say, you know, Congressman Khanna does believe that certain sanctions can be important. I would say that sanctions brought Iran to the negotiating table with the JCPOA because they were targeted and they had a, a set achievable goal. But the Trump policy of sort of indefinite sanctions or the Cuba embargo, just sort of, we're going to have these sanctions and, and embargo until there's regime change. One hasn't caused that regime to change and improve the, their behavior. And secondly, it, it ends up just hurting people on the ground. Switching gears a bit. Tech executives have now become a regular fixture on the Hill um, and have been receiving a lot of heat from various members of Congress. Your boss is in an interesting position in representing a big swath of Silicon Valley um, and a lot of the big tech companies um, that are located there. He's obviously written a lot about this topic and wrote a book last year, was it? This year, Dignity in the Digital Age. But I imagine this is a tricky issue to thread the needle on, both, you know, sort of holding companies to account while also representing the interests of a lot of these very big and meaningful drivers to the U.S. economy. would love to hear more about how you think about that and how you've approached that. Since he's come to Congress, one of his main initiatives or visions is how do we get more tech jobs? across the country, not just in our district of Silicon Valley or in other tech hubs, but how do we spread this across the country? It's easy to demonize tech or or think tech is out to get you when you see the billionaires in Silicon Valley making a ton of money, IPOing, and then, you know, you're you're in a part of the country that's community has been hollowed out, lost your job, that sort of thing. And so that's been one of the initiatives. That, that he's been focused on is, is how do we you know, create these jobs and how do we make sure that people who have coding or STEM backgrounds you know, can stay in their hometowns if they want to work for a tech company and not have to move to our district. You know, our district has a lot of problems with high housing prices and traffic, and it's kind of a, a weird situation. You know, most members of Congress are probably trying to find every way to bring more people and more jobs to their district, but we've been really trying to find ways to spread these jobs and opportunities. So it's other parts of the country. And so that, that's been one thing that we've been focused on. We've also came out with a Internet Bill of Rights, 
that you know we worked on with Tim Berners-Lee, who's the founder of the World Wide Web, to say that there needs to be a privacy framework for people to have you know ownership and autonomy and information about their data. I think a lot of people were surprised that the member from Silicon Valley was the one leading on on trying to put up some guardrails about you know what these companies can do or you know, not do with their data. He has a positive vision of tech. He's pro tech, pro innovation. We've also tried to work on the Armed Services Committee, on the Emerging Technologies Subcommittee, and with the Defense Innovation Unit, try and find ways to you know have. Silicon Valley and tech companies partner with with DoD. So generally, a very pro tech and innovation focused vision for the country domestically and, and, and from national a national security perspective. You know, he thinks that we're spending too much money on some of these traditional, outdated weapon systems that will never be used in a war. But it's the emerging technology of the future, like artificial intelligence and, and quantum computing, that are the ones that are actually going to make an impact or difference. You know, one way of putting it is we're spending a lot of money on traditional TV ads for a political campaign and China is is spending a lot of their money on digital advertising and you know we are looking at it from an outdated perspective. And so to get to get back to your question though, he's taken a, a realistic view on these issues and advocated for you know, guardrails and, and, and various regulations when there needs to be, but also just generally very positive and, and pro-tech and pro-innovation. Congress is often seen as a laggard on tech issues. How do you weigh those things as a staffer? And how do you try to get Congress to meet your district where it's at, as opposed to trying to get your district to Congress? That's a great question, and, and you're spot on. Unfortunately, Congress doesn't wake up on these issues until there's a major crisis uh, or some sort of, of scandal or report that comes out. You know, we weren't on top of the disinformation and data issue until after the 2016 election. And so there needs to be action before there's a major issue or a major problem. So, for example, on an on emerging technology issue, we've been trying to get out ahead of it before it becomes a major issue is on post-quantum cryptography. As of now, there, there hasn't been a big breach that it's out there because there aren't quantum-capable computers yet. But in the future, there will be. Uh, and, and countries are already doing what's called stealing now and, and decrypting later in the hopes of once they get their hands on a quantum-capable machine to, to decrypt that data. And so we led this bill called the, the Post-Quantum Cybersecurity Act that would move the, 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 the federal government and different agencies to start moving over to post-quantum cryptography now before there's an issue. So taking a lead on these issues before they become a major issue is, is one way in which you know, we tried to do this. But it is met with a lot of skepticism and resistance bringing people up to speed on, on, these, on these issues. And even sometimes for us, it's hard to keep up on some of this. And it's, and it's one of the, the great joys of, of working for this district is all the new technology that's coming out. As you mentioned, the metaverse, you know, Meta's in coming up with, they've built this Oculus headset and Apple's doing their, you know, their AR glasses. 
I just met with this other company that's skipping those headsets and going straight to contact lenses, which was mind blowing to me. Uh, right. So it, it, to your point, it, it's hard to keep up with the technology. And if we're always legislating based off of what was the last crisis instead of, you know, what are the potential ones in the future? I have to be careful of doing this with a light touch. You don't want to be overly prescriptive. The technologies can change. So I think it's important not to enshrine certain technologies in statute or in law that may change. But I think getting you know, federal agencies and the government starting to think about this uh, from a broad perspective, giving them the ability to, to adapt and adjust is really important. This is a tactical question. How do you get up to speed on all the various issues that you're covering, whether it's different types of emerging tech or when you're focused on national security exclusively, you know, a range of issues across a wide variety of geographies and and so forth? Like, where do you get your news? Like, how do you how do you digest the amount of information and insights and so forth that you need in order to even just do your job on a day to day basis? Yeah, it's definitely tough to to keep up with everything. Definitely, you have to be a generalist in this role. There are times where you gain some more expertise if you you know if you work on a particular issue, you know, day in and day out. So when we were doing the Yemen war power, that was reading all the news, you know, learning learning about all the all the details on that front, and still are. But on other issues, it's it's really you know reading different newsletters, skimming the you know the major newspapers, world section. You know, talking with various, building out a network of people that you can go to when there's something in the news. Because it's one thing to learn what the news headline is or what, you know, what, what the main, main piece of information is. But it's another to ask someone who knows what they're talking about, hey, what are the implications of this? You know, you've been thinking about this issue for years. How should we be thinking about it? And so building out a network of, of experts, so for foreign policy, you know, various foreign policy experts who we can turn to on these types of issues. But then the companies, you know, building up that network as well and, and getting to know them so that you can call them up and say, hey, I saw this in, in the news. What is this? Or can I do a, a site tour to see what the latest technologies are? You know, they'll oftentimes do meetings where they'll brief us on the latest, the latest things that they're working on and, and how we should think, be thinking about that from a congressional perspective. So one thing I've learned about in this, you know, being in this role is that everyone wants to talk to members of Congress and congressional staff, particularly if you're working on an issue because they want to influence the process. And so using that, that type of access can be helpful for staff who can't be experts on every possible issue, but reaching out and saying, what should I know on this? There's also the Congressional Research Service, which, which we can rely on. It's a slew of experts on every, every different topic or every different area of focus. And so before I went on my trip to Bahrain, had a briefing with, with the expert on, on Bahrain. Walking through the history, there's congressional research service reports that you can read on this. Uh, so there are the resources that are there. And you just have to take the time to sort of do that and not assume that you know what's going on. And just sort of being humble in the fact that you don't, you don't know as much as you should. And so, you know, asking a lot of people basic questions even if it might make you look silly. That's another thing I've learned. Don't assume. Don't, you know, it's, it's more embarrassing to brief the boss on something that you thought you knew and that you really didn't than to just ask a simple question to someone, even though that might expose the fact that you don't know everything about this topic. 
Congressman Khanna is among the younger members of Congress. I'm curious, do you think that allows him to better grasp some of the evolving dynamics of the country or cultural issues? Where have you seen that be an advantage or disadvantage? I would say he uh, has definitely taken a sort of Silicon Valley mindset or approach to, to D.C., whether that's the way in which he legislates, the way in which he runs the office, you know, made me chief of staff at a, at a young age. I think that is similar to the, the Silicon Valley ethos of you know, don't care, you know, how many gray hairs you have or, you know, how many years of, you know, endless amounts of experience. But if you can do the job and you can do the job well, you know, I'll have you here. And I think that's that's sort of a younger mindset to things and then just the way in the, the positions that he's taken and, and the bills that he's advanced, I would argue are, are more courageous than others. And he's also quite informal in the way that, you know, he texts a lot. Uh, he's, he's online. He's not someone who needs a, a hundred page binder of printed out things. A lot of times it's quick texts, it's emails. Uh, he's very, you know, di- digitally fluent. And so I think in, in the fast paced nature of, of a job like this and being from a, a younger generation and more tech fluent, uh, you know, has been helpful in that regard. So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we each talk about something either in the news culturally or politically that we're going to be following. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? So I have been following the news that NASA recently confirmed it has successfully changed the orbit of an asteroid that was deep in space through a mission that was called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART for short. And it was essentially an effort to test out the technology that might be required in order to throw off the course of a dangerous asteroid that could potentially have a collision impact with Earth and and so forth. My understanding of this is that this is essentially the scenario in Don't Look Up, a movie that came out recently that some of you may have seen. But I am privately quite relieved that this technology has been successfully tested so that that scenario will not come to pass. Gia, what are you following this week? That's a great one, Zoe. And if I could just comment on that, you know, I think that it gives me hope in humanity and our scientists to solve these existential issues. Obviously, that's been a perennial fear, but I also think it gives me hope in other areas. Uh, you know, back in the, the 70s, we had the fear of the population bomb and you know, we were able to genetically engineer crops so that, you know, we had enough food to feed people. And, you know, I'm optimistic that, you know, in the on the climate change problem, we will find ways to innovate our way out of it. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be moving to wind and solar now and, and making those investments. But, you know, I am hopeful that there can be a, a technological breakthrough, whether it's, you know, as it pertains to fusion or, or, or nuclear, or any of those other types of technologies that could prevent a, a catastrophe like that. And, and the example that you raised with uh, what NASA just did gives me hope on that. One that I'm following is the Nobel Prize uh, in physics, which is awarded to, you know, three physicists who had been, you know, real pioneers on quantum science, uh, particularly on entanglement and, uh, you know, proving Einstein wrong, which 
was surpri- was surprising to learn. Uh, but they've really pioneered this field, and I think it has a huge impact on on you know every aspect of our lives. If if we can create a, a quantum computer with enough qubits, the the types of problems that we'll be able to solve, you know, are endless. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, there is a huge national security and just privacy implication to it as well. That you know, we need to move over to post quantum cryptography now if we care about encryption and privacy and and keeping things that were meant to be private private. But you know the, the fact that the three of them want it uh, and just a growth in that space and industry is something that I'm excited to follow. This week, I want to highlight the horrific ongoing situation in Haiti. Following the assassination of their president in 2021, things have become increasingly desperate. Cholera is back and has already killed at least one person, and gang violence is rampant. The issue is so acute that a gang currently controls a major port, which has led to shortages in fuel and water. This has led to calls by some in the government for UN and international military assistance, while others fear the situation in 2010, where UN peacekeepers were ineffective and were linked to a cholera outbreak that killed 10,000 people. The US and Canada just days ago delivered security equipment to the Director General of the Haitian National Police. However, it won't be enough. There are no easy answers here, and the situation is dire. Haiti is less than 377 miles from American soil in Puerto Rico. So I urge you, if you're listening, to follow this story, reach out to your representatives, and get additional aid for our neighbor. Yeah, that's a great one, Grant. Thanks for, for raising that. And you know, I mentioned the staff delegations earlier in the, in the segment. Um, and I don't know if, if you know this, but oftentimes these are paid by the foreign governments. And so oftentimes you're going to countries that, that have the, the money to, you know, to pay for staffers to go and learn about these countries. But there's not a staff delegation trip to places like Haiti. And I think that's an issue that certain countries are able to you know, bring staff and, and have them learn about it there. But developing countries or you know, poor countries like Haiti don't have the resources to bring staff there. Now, maybe that's not a good, it's not a good time to, to visit with the security concerns. But the point, the larger point is that there is an inequality there. And it, it's important for, you know, staff and members to be aware of, of every kind of country, particularly ones like Haiti, who, who don't have the resources or the ability to, you know, let alone these trips, but also, you know, lobbying on the Hill or lobbying in DC or paying for for fancy lobbyists. That's another inequality that impacts our foreign policy making process. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's NextGen initiative and is a proud member of the DSR network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Geo in the halls of Congress. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the links in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Lukashenko's Tractor Supply. Are you looking for an early holiday gift for a loved one or potentially an aging autocrat? Gift certificates are available. Actually, I'm getting word now that due to sanctions, gift certificates are the only thing that's available. 
so after you pick up your gift certificate for a brand new tractor, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.